Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, Crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange, and to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash crypto Delphi now, or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Ben and Santiago, who are partners at Parify, which is an investment firm focused on digital assets and the DeFi ecosystem. How's it going, guys? It's going great. Thanks, Tom. Hey, Tom. Good to be here. So, guys, I want to dive right in. Let's make this let's make this hot. Um, Santiago, you brought up a good point before we started diving in that I want to get into really soon about comparing yield farming to kind of like the 2017 ICO boom. But first, it would make sense to kind of just give the 30 seconds on uh, Parify. And this is for Ben or Santiago. Um, sure, uh, I'll get started. This is Santiago. You know, Parify really, our, our sole focus is investing in financial infrastructure. And by that, we mean investing in, in DeFi, open decentralized finance. And I think that the big bet and opportunity that we see is, you know, this entire parallel system that is being developed um, that is, you know, incredible in the sense that you have all the sort of money for lending, borrowing, investing, saving, powered by, you know, currently Ethereum, but we see you know, getting incredible product market fit. These are big markets. And I think it, 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 it is touching on one of the best use cases that blockchain technologies has had over the last 10 years, which is, you know, finance applications. And really, when you think about it, finance hasn't really been modernized for the last 20 years. And blockchain uniquely enables that. And I think that's what we're seeing. And that's what we're uh, excited to invest in. in, in yeah, no, it's nothing short of exciting. So let's let's dive right in. You know, yield farming, liquidity mining, it's kind of taking the space by storm. Uh, for those who are unaware, it's just basically incentive, token incentives in the form of governance tokens to take part in a platform, provide liquidity, usage, stuff like that. How are you guys feeling about this boom cycle here versus, you know, past cycles, say with like the 2017 ICO boom? Yeah, I think it, what's different in this case is... Um, you know, 2017, you saw an influx of projects raise capital um, using largely Ethereum, like the ERC-20 standard. And to me, that felt like a like a capital leverage machine of sorts. Um, but it was sort of going to entropy state, right? You had all these projects that raised capital on the vision of building something that would work, right? And they would go back to the you go draw raise capital. Some of those projects delivered. Some of them are still pending to ship products. Um, but that was sort of that capital was sucked into those particular projects. And what we're seeing now is you've had an entire sort of bear market where there's been projects building a lot of infrastructure, 
projects like Compound Synthetics, um, you know, Uniswap, where the capital that is entering the space is being absorbed um, and being put to good use in the sense of like it's not in an entropy state; it's being um, recycled. It's being um, you know circulating through this entire ecosystem called DeFi, and um, I think that's one of the main distinctions that we see um, as it relates to differences between 2017 and now is. Well, there's actually now uses for that capital entering in, in, in the system. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing just to add is, I mean, DeFi was growing at a, at a rapid clip prior to liquidity mining being a thing. Um, liquidity mining has really served as, as an accelerant for the DeFi space. It's effectively a, you know, a novel way of programming customer acquisition costs uh, by giving away equity in a network. Um, so it's, it's extremely clever. Uh, it leans on economic incentives, which are difficult to ignore. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, you know, accelerated total value locked across these networks in a meaningful way, really just, you know, beginning in mid-June. I mean, I think it's, we always joke crypto, crypto kind of runs in dog years in terms of the amount of activity that can be compressed into short periods of time. And we're really only 45 days in, roughly, into the start of liquidity mining on DeFi. I think there will be certainly a lot of uh, experimentation. Um, just like with any new technology, you'll see new firms launch liquidity mining to attract users. Uh, and then you'll see kind of more legitimate, like, more legitimate protocols with actual product market fit doing it as well as just a way to enhance and, and accelerate their growth. But I, I think this is. You know, liquidity mining isn't going away. You know, balancers program is lasting for over eight years. Compounds is lasting for over four years. You know, UMA just launched liquidity mining starting yesterday. Curve is launching. You know, in the coming couple next couple of weeks, and I think it's really only going to accelerate going forward. So I don't think this is going away. You know, anytime soon. And you you brought up a good point. We're only like forty five days into this. How do you feel about the sustainability of this, though? I mean. You know, on one hand, you have something like Compound that has rewards for, say, four years, and that can change, and Balancer, you said, is for eight, and other platforms. But, I mean, it's kind of weird because, you know, while we're 45 days in, there's obviously this mega rush to get uh, tokens that, that are valued highly. But I'm wondering what this looks mm-hmm. like, you know, three, four years from now. Yeah, yeah I'll take crack. I mean, I, I, I look, I think, you know, the way I kind of think about it is it, it, you can kind of think about the numerator as the total liquidity mining rewards that are being distributed every day across DeFi and the denominator being all the capital chasing those opportunities. And that like, you know, the, what, you know, the, the ratio is effectively, you can think about it as a kind of the ROI that participants can earn from liquidity mining. Now, what you've seen is the numerator continues to go up as, projects la- as new projects launch liquidity mining Um, At the same time, the denominator is also increasing. And so there's this kind of an element of like zero-sum nature to these networks. And I think what we're we're seeing is really we're in price discovery mode with respect to how to price the risk behind liquidity mining. You know, will, in a long-term equilibrium state, will participants in liquidity mining schemes need to earn 30% or 40% to justify the risk? Or will it be more like 20%? You know, and certainly like time will tell on like kind of how people view the risks of these networks and in terms of what return kind of they need to earn. One of the things I'll add here, Tom, is I think the calculus, it goes, there's two formulas that I think top of mind. 
is, as Ben alluded to, these are very effective, effectively ways to acquire customers to your network um, in, in a very efficient manner. But you need to believe the long-term value of that customer is going to be high, right? It, it goes back to like software investment. Like, is your LTV to CAC high? Um, you know, I think the you're in this state of the world where people are shifting from protocols, from compound to balancer to uh, Wi-Fi, back to, now to UMA. And so there's this constant rotation of capital, which is fascinating to see. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if you really zoom out, you have to believe that, one, it goes back to your product. If you don't have a good product, it doesn't matter. It's not sustainable. But I think the protocols that have a strong product um, are the ones that ultimately can, cat, like can, can benefit from this liquidity mining incentive. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you don't have a good product that people want and use, no amount of yield, no amount of financial engineering is going to solve for that. So I think those are the that, that's where I will draw the line between a liquidity mining program uh, that is sustainable and that, as Ben said, over long term, I think we can expect you know the yields to compress as risk you know sort of as we become smarter about balance, uh, the understanding risk in these protocols. But if your product's not good, no amount of liquidity mining is going to matter. I mean, that's a good point. So, I mean, do you guys? How do you think about the lock-in beyond jumping around, right? Like, how do we get people to stay in Compound and not jump to Balancer and Ave and others or, or vice versa? Because as you said, you need a product that grows and expands. And a lot of that comes down to governance. So you want people getting these tokens to actually, you know, vote and have a yeah. say in the protocol. But I'm not sure that we're actually there yet. No, that's that's a great point. Look, I, I almost think of like a lot of people give Compound credit for liquidity mining. I think Synthetics was really the first protocol to come out with liquidity mining almost a year ago, a year and change ago. Um, what you see, the way Synthetics architected this program was it, it has a year lockup. So if you earn the reward, these synthetic rewards, um, they're locked for a year. And I think that, in my mind, is perhaps the right approach here because the question is, would you rather acquire a 1,000 users um, or would you rather, that, that might you know be mercenaries and, and and jump quickly and farm and dump, or would you rather acquire a hundred core core users that are going to use your product that are going to give you feedback? And I think, I mean, I think the writing's on the wall. Synthetics has created one of the best communities. I think they've been very systematic about launching a product, and their liquidity program attracted the right kind of user, the power user that is most valuable to your network. At the end of the day, these are all networks that are still in their infancy, and what you want is to acquire a customer that is going to be very involved. Is going to build strong community. Is going to tell you what the product should look like and evolve. And I think it's a distinction that we've seen in like the 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 tech world here, right? I mean, you see all these companies that whenever they hand out free money to customers, everyone's going to take it. But I think it really goes back to what understanding who your core customer is and attracting them and retaining them. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. It is hard. It is a moving target. Um, what are your thoughts though, when we get to a more mature point on the space with voter apathy, like, do you expect a lot of these token holders to actually really get involved and help, you know, fuel the direction of these protocols? Like maker obviously like had a lot of, you know, voter interest early on with people, you know, having a say, but I feel like that quickly kind of fell by the wayside because people didn't want to vote on interest rates every single day. Um, how do you think about that when you have people having to vote for, you know, 10 or 15 different protocols and having to stay up with that? It seems kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, Tom. I mean, I think like the cognitive load 
to kind of keeping up with all the governance proposals across across DeFi is getting is getting you know quite high. And so over time, I mean, I think you'll see more delegation, kind of similar to what you're seeing on Compound, where there are, you know, uh, there's effectively a leaderboard of uh, comp holders, and people can delegate to them uh, and delegate kind of governance power to them. I, I think what you'll actually begin to see is uh, effectively government as a service, so governance as a service. So you know, paying people who are active on voting and participating in changes to the network and like heavily incentivizing that behavior. Because um, to Santiago's point, I think the single biggest, you know, barrier or underrated kind of, you know, strength or moat of DeFi projects is community and engagement. And attention is, is a very scarce resource. So really the question just comes back to how can you build customer lock-in? How can you build that community and engagement? And I think you know, it certainly helps to provide financial incentive, uh, you know, on the outset. So I, I think you'll kind of see that as, as a major trend in the coming months. Yeah, I'm with you there. Definitely proxies or delegation would, would solve a lot of the governance issues there and, and kind of the cognitive load. Just to round out this kind of discussion, though, where do you guys see the hype cycle going here, right? Like we're 45 days in. I feel like, you know, we obviously had a dip a couple of days ago in the markets. Everyone kind of cycled back into Bitcoin underneath. But it kind of feels like this, you know, I, I hate to say, you know, forever sustainable because it's never the case, but I kind of feel like this is not just some blip on the radar. Like, I feel like this is a sustainable trend, but I'm just trying to figure out if the hype is sustainable. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, our, our view is that, you know, we are in a very early inning of a capital rotation outside, uh, you know, away from Ethereum killers, away from, you know, large web3 projects that that never launched into defi. You know, defi if you look at it today, depending on how you measure it, if you look on a circulating supply basis or fully diluted basis, it's you know, call it a mid single digit billions figure, which is, you know, between 1 and 2% of overall crypto market. You know, if you strip out bitcoin, it's call it roughly, you know, 5% of uh, you know, liquid crypto. Um, it's a very small number. Yet it's the only vertical that you can point at in the blockchain space that over the past kind of 12 years of blockchain, you know, being a thing and public blockchains being a thing, it's the only vertical that has seen like demonstrable product traction, product market fit, people using these systems because they're actually better than the legacy financial system. And, you know, Santiago likes to say, you know, our, our kind of operating assumption is that no one cares about crypto. You know, no one cares about new technology. People just care about products and services that are going to make their lives better. And so in finance, that's stuff that is either going to save you money, you know, make you money or save you time. And I think you're seeing, you know, use cases in DeFi that are doing just that. And so I, you know, we, we think that, you know, that's all to say, you know, we think we are very early on this in this re-rating. Um, around kind of the market realizing that finance is really like the second killer use case of blockchain behind just Bitcoin as digital gold. It's it's programmable money, and so you know we think we're we think we're in an early inning of of this capital rotation. You know, and, and certainly it will be volatile on the way up. But the last time I felt this way was, you know, uh, Bitcoin in in 2015, 2016, kind of before the run up where. You kind of saw what was happening. You saw the fundamental backdrop. 
and uh, you know the price really began a kind of multi-year run up. And so I think we're, yeah. you know, I think I, I expect to see some a, a similar dynamic play out in the DeFi space. Yeah. And just to add a couple of data points here, Tom. But I mean, to Ben's point, it, it feels to me like, you know, when you really zoom out, you've never really had untethered global pools of liquidity, the capital markets, full stop. I mean, that is in my mind explosive. And and then you start beginning well. Certainly, a lot of people don't have access to products like investing and having exposure to asset classes. And, and now, perhaps you'll see a day where people can buy a synthetic Tesla or a synthetic Apple. You have stable coins that are, in, you know, just a killer use case for not only people in countries where you don't want to hold the local currency, but also businesses in the U.S. that have to transact with people across the world. I mean, I think that becomes that's where I think. Like every good technology gets adopted, not because people care about it per se or know how it works. It's simply, it's too hard to ignore. It just gets embedded as an operating standard. And I think we're seeing across the board early indications and signals that that is happening under the hood. Uh, You have businesses using USDC globally. You have CFI. You have companies like Coinbase entering DeFi, interested in DeFi. Uh, Another data point is, you know, trading stable coins, right? That, Earlier this year, where, where Curve launched, we were looking at it, and the slippage of trading stablecoins, which has been a hard area with a lot of friction, was almost a parity with Coinbase or, or like uh, some centralized exchange. Very quickly, that that switch that switch flipped, and now, as Ben said, traders are somewhat savage because they care about the bottom line. They're not going to use DeFi protocols because you know, they sort of are in this Orwellian anarchist mindset, which is more of the Bitcoin camp, which is fine. But the reality is mainstream cares about the bottom line, right? The trader cares about his book. And if he can trade a stable coin seamlessly without counterparty risk with tighter like spreads, it's too hard to ignore. And that's the state of the world that we're converging on very quickly. So early signs for sure. But I think we're still, as Ben said, uh, in the first inning of this, you know, evolution of, of open networks. Yeah, it's a really good, I really like your guys' view there because it's long-term and it kind of paints the picture on the hype versus sustainability aspect. I like that. Um, another question for you guys on this point is that, you know, I feel like the internet is kind of undefeated here versus traditional companies because you just have a pool of, you know, millions of people and ideas and that will always top, you know, five or 10 people at a HQ at Twitter or Facebook on, on iterating and things like that. I'm wondering what your take is, though, long term in terms of the governance itself. Like, do you think people will actually come to Compound and Ave and you know Curve and others with their tokens and vote to enhance the product themselves, or do you think that it's more for hey, let's just decide on increased issuance? Like, I'm just wondering what you guys think the level of involvement will be from you know everyday people around the world on improving these protocols. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, well, just observing like uh, studying politics and how democracies have worked uh, throughout history, I think it's it's very hard to assume. Or I think I struggle to to view a world where everyone gets involved. Right? I think there's representative, elected representatives that can vote on behalf of the community. Different, I think, from traditional political systems, the openness of how people vote, as Ben said, in the leaderboard of compound. There's a richness in history of how. For instance, parifies voting on certain proposals on Maker or, or, or Compound. And, and you can observe these in real time. 
And I think that level of transparency has been, I think, a key distinction that puts more responsibility on share on, on, on governors, if you will, of the system. Because at the end of the day, people can can undelegate to you and delegate to another um, you know, another for another governor in the system, right? And so I think this ability where people can can quickly switch. It's not like in, in traditional democracy where, you know, in the U.S. you have an election cycle every four years, uh, perhaps a, a more parliamentary system like the U.K. when the, the parliament could be dissolved on moment's notice if, if the people have a referendum and uh, don't like how the current regime is being governed, you can dissolve parliament, right? I think that it, it's more close to that parliamentary system where if people don't like how you're voting on a particular proposal or it's contentious, people can undelegate and, and delegate to another governor. And so I think that that implicitly puts pressure and accountability and ownership to the people that are actually voting, right? But I don't I certainly don't think that like traditional people or passive people operating DeFi are going to be as heavily engaged in governance. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash crypto Delphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. That's that's really good caller. I mean, it kind of flows into kind of like Synthetics's recent decisions, right? Like they created three distinct DAOs, like they're actually decentralizing. Do you guys have any takes there? Because I mean, they're a major project, obviously, on Ethereum. They have a huge treasury. Um, then mm-hmm. I also have some follow-up questions there. Sure. I think uh, Synthetics going to a DAO um, is, I think a lot of projects are going in that direction. Uh, I mean, look at Wi-Fi, which is probably the purest form of uh, governance distribution that I've seen since Bitcoin. Uh, really. And I think that it goes back to the point of how do you create a community? How do you give power to the people? I mean, you have someone like Long for Wisdom and the Maker Threads who out of nowhere, just no one really knows who he is, but he's been very involved in maker governance. He has now a very important weight in how these proposals get approved or come up for voting. And so, look, Synthetic's move to its DAO has a lot of, um, makes a lot of sense, I think, from a you know, just handing over power to the to the community. I think this sort of progressive decentralization has been important evolution for them. You know, I think trying to do it all at once probably wouldn't have been possible, but it took over a year of really cobbling together and creating a very strong community and finding members within the community that can step up and take that added responsibility. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's um, I give them a lot of credit for kind of progressively decentralizing. It's not easy and a lot of projects frankly, kind of mess it up. So I'm excited to see if they could, um, they pull it off. Do you think that we'll get to a world where kind of Kane and the main team are literally not at Synthetics anymore? Like, do you think that over the next couple of years, this could run without them? I, I think they'll, knowing Kane and the team, I think they have a lot of passion in this. So I think they'll be involved. Now, the question is, can the system survive without them? Right? Can there be a c- continuity to the project? And I think the answer in my mind is yes. You know, they, they've created, and look at sort of D-Hedge, which is perhaps one of the first protocols to build on top of synthetics, which is fascinating in my mind. You talked about the treasury, I and mean, synthetics has roughly 180 million 
in Treasury, which equates to like 45% of their circulating supply, 25% fully diluted. So that war chest is going to be huge that the, the Dow now controls to give out grants, uh, not only to people within the synthetics team, but also in the community, like projects like eHead or or even funding Ethereum to development. They, they've historically done a lot of those grants. So I think it's it's we uh, it's becoming very interesting to see a project like D-Hedge, which is building on top of synthetics to to what I call like sort of the hub and spoke model, which is like you've created a platform. Now you have the end state is to have all these different applications built on top of your platform. And I think this will be, I think the placeholder guys sort of developed this fat protocol thesis, which is a lot of people question it given how value hasn't necessarily accrued to ETH and DeFi. But this, I think uh, we're dubbing the fat protocol, the fat DeFi protocol thesis, which is synthetics might be the first one where you have a bunch of projects being built on top of it. uh, And you have a DAO that controls a war chest to incentivize people to build. That's that's fair. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind that I think synthetics has more or kind of equal to the money the Ethereum Foundation has, kind of excluding consensus, which I usually loop them in together. It's wild. What are you guys thinking though on the Fat Protocol thesis itself? Like when you think about ETH's value accrual in face of all of these DeFi tokens literally rocketing to the moon, it really does throw like that by the wayside, at least in the short term. But I mean, like Ben mentioned earlier, kind of only really 45 days into this. Yeah, I mean, I think like how to value Ethereum like remains one of the most interesting and, and unanswered questions in the crypto space. I think like valuing Bitcoin is more straightforward. Valuing DeFi tokens is also more straightforward because you can look at discounted cash flows. But something like Ethereum and how it accrues value, I think it's going to take you know years to really for the market to really develop a sophisticated framework for, for thinking about it. I mean, certainly, like, if you looked at the ratio of ERC-20 tokens, or effectively, like, work tokens, like, let's set aside ERC-20 stablecoins, and look at the ratio of ERC-20 work tokens to, uh, you know, the market cap of ETH, um, you know, you saw that ratio effectively, you know, very low, and it's, it's increased as of late. So, you know, DeFi tokens as a category have effectively outperformed the price of ETH. I think that, you know, I think that, you know, investors in some ways are viewing, uh, I think at least in the short term, you know, narratives, narratives kind of tend to rule the market. And many investors are looking at ETH as effectively indexed exposure to DeFi. I mean, everything in DeFi requires holding ETH as working capital. And it's the primary form of collateral on these networks. It's in some of these networks, it's, it's a medium of exchange, although that's increasingly moving to stable coins. So I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to envision a world where DeFi becomes you know, a new and open financial system that's global and permissionless and, you know, and supports, let's say, you know, billions of dollars of financial activity, but Ethereum you know, continues to you know, it, it, ETH does not, does not increase in value, you know, but understanding the exact interplay between kind of increases in Ethereum prices and increases in, in kind of DeFi tokens is, is like, I think a quite a, quite a complex question. I think yeah, um, it, I'll jump. Oh, sorry, Santiago. Uh, I was going to say, uh, one of the things that I sort of ascribed to that view of, uh, of Ben, one of the interesting developments in Ethereum will be EIP 1559, which will effectively create, um, 
optimize the way we think about gas and and how uh, I mean right now we're living in a very high gas environment, but uh, quite excited to see IP fifteen fifty nine, which at a high level will burn uh, some of the tokens. And so at the, even in this environment, you could you could have a state where Ethereum feel like net inflation is negative. And so that I think that that I think will unlock more clear value accrual at this bottom layer, right? Of of computational substrate to support all activity that's happening on top. So quite excited for that. Yeah. The, yeah. the other thing I'll just the, the other thing I'll, I'll just add is I mean I think there was like a meme, uh, you know, maybe six six to twelve months ago around you know is is ETH money and. I thought that was kind of silly because it seems to me like it's it's quite obviously money. You have a you have a group of people that consider it to be money, and there's you know the the market for money isn't a monopoly. There are multiple types of money in the world. If you're in a prison, cigarettes can serve as money. And really, like if you think about it in the ETH economy, you know ETH is used as a store of value for some. It's used as a medium of exchange. Uh, it's used as a unit of account. Um, it's also effectively a commodity. So I think that to some degree, you'll see ETH accrue, continue to accrue a monetary premium as as DeFi kind of continues to grow and be, and, and kind of continues to grow as the primary primary use case on top of Ethereum. Yes, those are all really good points. Santiago, I'm, I'm excited for IP1559, especially just for the UX benefits and just being able to understand gas prices more easily for users. I think it's cool, especially with the burn. Ben, Back to your earlier point, um, how do you think, though, about, I guess, portability of apps built on Ethereum? Like, let's say that you're building, you know, take an example, synthetics, compound, whatever you really want. But let's say Ethereum goes to proof of stake, the market cap and the price really don't keep up. And let's just say it's, you know, somewhat cheap to attack the network. We'll just use vague round numbers here. But, you know, what's your take on these projects moving to other chains? Because it seems like, you know, in theory, hey, just port them over to a better chain. But there's obviously like a lot of risks that go in there, right? Like obviously moving the code, the community, um, your treasury might be denominated in ETH. Like how do you kind of think through that risk over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, a, like it's a very theoretical risk. And I, I don't view it as a risk necessarily, and certainly not in the near term. Just because to your point, Tom, I think it's, you know, there's, there's a significant amount of, composability within uh you know within DeFi. Um, and so you have you have something like DAI that's used across every application or CDI that's used across you know numerous applications. And to kind of uh you know to, to kind of you know it's kind of in some ways like they're just real like net, network effects in terms of the activity that go that's taking place on top of Ethereum. You would have to almost see like an exodus uh, of applications to other blockchains or bridges built to other blockchains. But I don't view necessarily portability as as like a major, at least like near term threat to Ethereum. I don't know, Santiago, you you probably have a, have a great view on this as well. Yeah, Tom, it's it's a great question. Look, I I am aware that projects like Solana, Polkadot launching, Cosmos, you know, I think you got to zoom out and say, look, these networks are young. And in no way, I think Ethereum has have it all figured out. There are versions of this world and edge cases where the experience just degrades up to a point where, you know, it takes one or two major projects to ship. If that happens, dominoes may fall. I think where I 
come at it is I think the developer community is the biggest mode of these networks, open source networks. By far, Ethereum is king in that respect. But it's uh, playing devil's advocate here as much as you know, I think we're seeing most of the activity in Ethereum is you have projects that have a huge war chest. I mean, Polkadot just raised a huge round, continues to raise. That uh, matters, right? When you talk about the Ethereum Foundation not having enough resources uh, and perhaps being undercapitalized, um, it could be a threat for sure. You know, at the end of the day, you have FTX launching their DEX, uh, dubbed uh, Project Serum, building on top of Ethereum and Solana. So could that be a good... It takes one or two projects to give other developers a view and imagination of how the world could work. There's also another version where you have cross-chain interoperability and, you know, composability is really important right now. And, and that's, I think, a very the glue that sticks together and keeps people within Ethereum. But if you go to a sharded environment, then how do you start thinking about these sort of things, right? My personal view, as far as I understand it, and take it with a grain of salt because I'm not highly technical, is composability, much like the internet, will is, is sort of a spectrum. It's not binary state. And so I think more recent, I'd love to hear perhaps someone in your podcast in the future. I'd love to hear some of these devs talk more about how do we, not so much if composability is going to break. I think it's a matter of, for certain applications, composability is more important than others. It's more of how do we improve composability? Because uh, my understanding is this was an issue back when the internet was being developed, like you had sort of these gateways. So how do you communicate? And I think how do we create better fabrics and connective tissue within DeFi as it exists today in Ethereum, but also connecting like Ren is doing with you know cross-chain communication? So anyways, long-winded answer. I think I, I don't have a perfect one. It, I think it's something that we'll continue to observe, and it's quite fascinating. Some of these layer twos like Solana, oh, oh sorry, layer ones like Solana launch and try to attract projects. Yeah. No, I'm glad you don't have a, a set answer and this because it's always changing. Sorry, Ben, I cut you off there. Oh, no. So I was just going to add like one thing that it's kind of interesting that, you know, we've certainly observed in the market over the past, call it six to 12 months is, you know, the, the, the financial capital and human capital required to launch a project on Ethereum is like, if you were to plot it on an XY axis, it's, it's like a, a downward sloping line that's declining very quickly. So, I mean, you look at kind of Uniswap um, or Curve, you, you're or one inch or you know, many of like these projects that have gotten real traction, they're built with, you know, typically like one or two, two person teams. They didn't require much capital to get off the ground. And developers, I think, want to build where they can see a path towards launching something quickly and without with the least amount of friction. And I think Ethereum is the, the, the shelling point for that. So, you know, building something on another layer one, you're taking a lot of like leaps of faith. You know, will there be other projects built there? What do, you, do you have to build something like more vertically? Or, you know, one of the benefits of ETH is you can, there are already, there are already these protocols, whether it's Maker or Compound or Aave that you, or, or Curve that have these like primitives that you can like effectively use in your protocol. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel from the ground up. And so I think that's why, like, there's just, there's just this mat, uh, gravitational pull toward, towards ETH today. Um, I mean, we're certainly, like, open-minded, but, um, like, it, it seems like, if anything, you know, it's, it feels like it's kind of put more distance, you know, between itself and the field uh, in recent months. Yeah, no, I'm, I totally agree with you guys. Like, I definitely think ETH has the lead, the primitives, the liquidity, and the developer moat is just amazing at this point. I mean, just... Playing devil's advocate here, though, like I'm of the opinion that 
Ethereum being open to the world drives anyone to build apps. And, you know, we're seeing that today, right? Like we're seeing random apps come out of nowhere just because the sample pool is so large. You know, a couple of years ago with Ethereum, like we didn't know like Compound or Maker would be a thing, right? Like we had ideas, but it's just easy to see because it's at the app layer. I guess my question for you guys is if you're somebody like Polkadot or Near or Solana or something like that, you kind of figure out, okay, we need a wallet, we need dev, dev tools. You know, we already, Ethereum had to find that out the hard way, but they could build all that. What are your perspectives or what probability do you put that you get some, you know, black swan or I guess not, not a bad way, but in a good way, a random viral app built on a different protocol that just takes the place by storm? Because I feel like it's inevitable that something will pop up on another chain that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tom, uh, great question. Um, where I see that potentially happening is probably in gaming or uh, probably gaming, I'd say. I mean, you have like Flow, for instance, application-specific uh, blockchain, which is a team to build crypto kitties, And I think they've done a good job of like building like some of these partnerships with like the NBA and sports. And could you have a very viral app? For sure. I mean, I think these are... I don't think it's mutually exclusive, though. I feel that, again... The it will attract a, a specific cohort of users that that care about gaming, which has different sort of computational throughput, latency requirements relative to finance, right? So, in my mind, um, you know, I think for a lot, I think this space is, uh, you know, as much as a lot of people like to say strong beliefs weekly held, it, it does attract a lot of maximalism, and I think that the the design space is vast, and the use cases, the verticals are many. I think we'll get there. I just don't think that it's mutually exclusive, right? A version where you have a lot of interest in flow doesn't necessarily mean zero sum for Ethereum. In many ways, you can have just the connectivity, cross-chain connectivity, where you can deposit your NFT. You can deposit your NFTs of of, of, of like Stephen Curry or some like your baseball cards represented an NFT in flow. You could use rent to use a bridge to then deposit those makers collateral and then take out die and then interact in, in Ethereum. So I think we're a lot of times I think we where I've at least made the mistake is just fall short of how big this can be in the sense that like how we define DeFi broadly is just exchanging value. And I think one of the things that we think of value today is currency, as stocks, you know, as as commodities or what have you. But I think that definition alone will expand to some of these things that that that, that fulfill the properties of moneyness, if you will. And what's fascinating is seeing things like Zora Foundation or even NFTs, where you can have efficient price discovery on otherwise illiquid assets, right? And the digital scarcity component combined with an AMM to get price discovery on like digital art, I think is going to be explosive. And I think that's where you can start supporting different application blockchains that are designed for these use cases. It's just a matter of connecting them in my mind. Yeah, no, the connections are brutal. And the connections have changed a lot over time, right? Like you had Polkadot talking about bridges a while back, and now they're mm-hmm. a layer one. And now you have you know Cosmos with token transfers, and now you have liquidity pools and AMMs. It seems like the value transfer within Ethereum and different projects has gotten a lot better um, to date. I mean, just look at Uniswap and One Inch and stuff like that kind of paints that picture too. Guys, what do you think about, last question for you guys to kind of round out this debate, not really debate, but more discussion. The DeFi versus CeFi space is super interesting to me, right? Like you have, you know, massive unicorns like 
Coinbase and Binance and others. And, you know, Coinbase might do an IPO. I'm wondering if they have to put, you know, Uniswap or Curve in their, in their S1 here as a competitor. But how do you kind of view the convergence between the two? Because it seems like, you know, the geeks and the nerds are, are always years ahead of kind of uh, mainstream investors in the world. And it seems like the space is shifting to a crypto native world outside of kind of the enterprises and the institutions that we kind of think of as normal companies and stocks. So, I mean, I'm kind of more bullish on the crypto side of things, but I want to get your take on the convergence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting that we're more recently you've seen examples of kind of just DeFi being, you know, cheaper than CeFi or faster than CeFi or offering less slippage than CeFi. Um, you know, currently you can borrow a stable coin at 0% from MakerDAO and you've started to see um, CeFi firms step in, borrow stable coins at 0% and then relend them out at, at, a higher, at a higher interest rate OTC. So I think increasingly you're going to see like a, effectively a convergence between CeFi and DeFi where CeFi leverages DeFi potentially on the back end. And I, I think you know, if DeFi is to scale to you know, millions of people beyond kind of the couple hundred thousand that, that use it today, it's really going to need kind of a lot of its complexity abstracted away. So, you know, thinking about kind of using it on the back end and not even knowing that you're trading on Uniswap or borrowing from Maker, but or lending on Compound, but you know, you're doing it through a familiar interface. And so, I mean, what, what's exciting to me, just to close out my thought, is you know, just seeing like to Santiago's point, like the fact that you can trade stablecoins you know, with less slippage through an AMM versus a two-sided order book, I mean, is, is just completely novel and, and explosive. And I think that, you know, like if you look at DEX volume as a percentage of centralized exchange volume, it continues to grow. And it, it just comes down to like, if, if a technology is offering like real value in finance, people are going to use it. And so I think that's what you're, you're starting to see. So I, I kind of see, I don't see CeFi and DeFi as like mutually exclusive. I kind of just see, I see a convergence between the two. Uh, that's fair. I mean, if you had to pick an extreme though, do you think like Compound puts BlockFi out of business and, you know, pools and AMMs put Coinbase out of business? I mean, that's obviously like a very nuanced, long question, you know, with some serious difference in demographics and stuff. But what do you think? Well, well yeah, I, I would say, look, in a long-term equilibrium state, like, it will be very difficult for traditional capital sources to be as economical as borrowing from Maker. It's because it's open source software, its cost of capital is structurally lower. Like versus JP Morgan, which has offices and ATM machines and people to pay, and it has shareholders where there's a cost of capital. I mean, MakerDAO is just software, right? So for something, for a protocol like that, you can envision a state of the world where the die savings rate is higher than, you know, is, is effectively higher than, you know, federal funds rates and the borrow rates are, you know, lower than prime. And like, because it's, it, there's, it, these systems, I think in equilibrium will create more surplus for consumers and they'll just inherently be less rent seeking. And so, I mean, capital has a way of just finding its, you know, of making its way to like the cheapest or most advantageous place. And so if I were to bet just singularly on DeFi or CeFi, I'd bet on DeFi. 
I'm yes. with you there, Ben. It's way more fun too. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, guys, it's uh, it's incredible having you on. We got to make this a a recurring thing. I like the uh, I like the dynamic you guys have and your focus and kind of how you could zoom out and view this less in a per project vacuum and more on a more global multi year scale in context with everything else going on. So I really appreciate um, you guys hopping on and Ben or Santiago. Please tell people where they could follow you to learn more about uh, you guys and Parify. Yeah, you can uh, you can reach me by email. I'm at ben, ben at parify.capital. And I lurk on Twitter, uh, but you can, uh, you can kind of find me yeah. through, uh, <laughs> through Telegram or, or other channels yeah. as well. Yeah, the best way is uh, Ben's a little bit more traditional, but uh, I am on Twitter at <laughs> Santiago Roel, or um, you can go to parify.capital, uh, our website, and we'd love to hear from anyone that's building in the space or just generally curious. I love that. And Ben, you are the third person who's dropped an email on 150 episodes. The last one was <laughs> uh, CEO of River. I love it. I mean, I think it's just a savage move. But <laughs> thanks so much for uh, for coming on, guys. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate really enjoyed this. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon. Mm-hmm.